Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My interview this week is with evolutionary biologists Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. They're here to talk about their brand new book, as well as some other topics they've been exploring lately in the online conversosphere that you're no doubt familiar with if you listen to this show. Also, did I just coin that term, conversosphere? I think I did. But before that, uh, some quick announcements. First, I want to let you know that on Tuesday, September 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be doing an online hangout for Patreon supporters of this podcast. We did one last month for the public, and it was fantastic, but also kind of huge. So I thought we'd do a slightly cozier one just for patrons. And you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and joining at any level. That also gets you ad-free early access editions of the show, as well as lots of other perks. The Hangout, again, will be on Zoom and we'll be talking about recent episodes of the show, including my conversations with Chelsea Handler, Sam Harris, Nama Cates, and no doubt this week's guests. Second item, which is unrelated to the podcast, but possibly of interest. Uh, as some of you might know, I teach private writing workshops, specifically in personal essay and memoir. Um, in addition to being a podcaster, I am also a writer. Uh, for the last several years, I've been doing these exclusively in person, usually out of my home. Um, to my amazement and delight, people have traveled from as far away as New Zealand to attend these things. Um, and after much demand, I am finally offering an online course. Uh, it's going to be on Zoom. And if you're interested, you can apply. The class will meet once a week for six weeks on Mondays from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern time and run from October 11th through November 15th. The application deadline is September 20th, and you can learn more about it at daummasterclass.com. Uh, space is limited because this is a real writing workshop, not just me lecturing at you. Uh, but if it appeals, please check it out and feel free to apply. Okay, on to this week's guests. They are Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, evolutionary biologists who are husband and wife and the authors of the new book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. Uh, as many listeners probably know, they are both former professors at Evergreen State College in Washington, where Brett, for one, came to public attention in 2017 over a dust-up that became perhaps the signature example of what we call the campus culture wars. He and Heather left their jobs there and have since become major figures in this so-called heterodox, mostly online, intellectual space, conversosphere, hmm. that most listeners of this podcast are probably familiar with. I think that works, conversosphere. Uh, they are the hosts of a hugely popular podcast, the Dark Horse Podcast, where they talk about social and political issues through an evolutionary lens, often rather controversially. Uh, Heather, as it happens, was the first guest ever on this podcast back in July of 2020. Uh, we talked about issues having to do with evolutionary imperatives and sex differences and sex discrimination, among other things. Uh, in this conversation here, I cover some of that ground with both of them. 
But we also talk about issues related to the central thesis of their book, which, um, if I'm summarizing this correctly, uh, has to do with the ways contemporary life now presents humans with challenges that we didn't necessarily evolve to handle very well. Or maybe it's that the contemporary world is causing us to evolve in ways that don't do our species a lot of favors. Um, I probably don't have that quite right, but they'll, they'll sharpen it up. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, we do spend some time talking about recent controversies Brett and Heather have become embroiled in over COVID-19 vaccines and also the drug ivermectin. I didn't want to make a huge meal out of it, but I did feel obliged to ask. Uh, this is one of those issues that there's probably no way of discussing that will be satisfying to everyone, maybe to anyone. Uh, and that's precisely why I didn't dwell on it. But it is there toward the end. Meanwhile, there's lots of good stuff before that, including stuff I've never heard these guys talk about before. So I think you are in for a real treat. Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. And I should say, Heather, welcome back. Thank you. Are you. Yes, it was so, I was so pleased to be on your podcast last summer and to be back here now with Brett. And I'm glad to be here. Well, it's really a treat. And yes, Heather, you were the inaugural guest of this podcast. So you are, uh, you will forever have a special place here. The occasion for this conversation is your new book, A Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. And we're going to talk about its various dimensions as well as a lot of other stuff. But just by way of contextualizing YouTube beyond what I said in my introduction, let's just lay this out for, for the few people out there who might not be familiar with you. You both have become extraordinarily prominent figures in this kind of amorphous online conversational space that's sometimes referred to as the heterodox space or the term IDW or intellectual dark web has been coined to refer to this group. Although I think that's somehow, I feel like the IDW is kind of phasing out. But anyway, so this is a world that emerged maybe four or five years ago and sort of took it upon itself to challenge certain liberal or progressive assumptions, a lot having to do with racial inequality, gender equality, ideas about power, challenge them from a liberal point of view. And Heather, I think I asked you this question when we talked before, but I'll ask you again now that I have both of you. So 30 years ago, when you began your careers as scientists, did you ever think you would wind up here? So what what are two nice evolutionary biologists who like did field work in Madagascar doing on YouTube and on big public stages talking about free speech? So Brett, Brett maybe you should start since I asked Heather this last time. Sure. I, I mean, I think the answer to the question is obviously no. And had we had such a thought, it would have been one of those thoughts that one dismisses as, yes, that's crazy, not worth worrying about because it is really... Where we have landed is so clearly implausible from the point of view of three decades ago that, uh, yeah, it, it, it would have been, it would have been a waste of time to try to sort through such remote possibilities, which, you know, of course, obviously does tell us something. We've landed somewhere and it's perilous and presumably gets less predictable from here. I guess um, the part of our careers, and it, it's a strange fact of our lives that uh, we've known each other since high school, we've been together romantically since college, and we've basically had the same job description ever since, which is very, very strange. Um, but 
the thing that actually prepared us for this, the, the work that is part of what we do, which is having conversations in public, uh, you know, about which, you know, which is now what you do and about which you wrote about, of course, in your last book, um, is the teaching actually. And I guess I would say that if you had asked either of us 30 years ago, as we were um, moving from undergraduate to graduate school, if either of us would have found tremendous value and, um, you know, meaning in education and teaching, we also would have said no. And so the leap from teaching to having conversations in public on YouTube and in podcasts and such is actually not as big a leap as it might seem. Mm, okay, that's interesting. And that actually folds nicely into talking about the book. You say in the introduction that the premise or the mission of this book is to look at the ways that the world has become hyper novel. That's your, your term. And you say that humans are extremely well adapted to change, but not the speed of change that we're seeing. So I think that, that what you just said, I think speaks to that. Like we never would have thought that we would have come to this place where we, we actually couldn't sort of process the world around us. So maybe you can talk about how this book came about. Is this something that either or both of you had been thinking about before you arrived at this public speech, public space debate stage, or or was this kind of relatively new? Uh, it's not new. In fact, the idea for this particular book goes back, I would say it at least a decade, maybe yeah, over over a decade. Close to closer to 15 years. And the need for it emerged uh, in a conversation between us and in conversation with our many students who frequently asked us to provide some sort of a book that they could hand to their friends uh, so that those friends could begin to pick up the toolkit. And the idea is really there is a toolkit for understanding what you are as a product of evolution and what it implies about the way you interact with your world. And, you know, one of the things Heather and I said to students very frequently early in the courses we taught was that if you were to list all of the things that you actually cared deeply about, you would find that almost all of them were deeply evolutionary, even if you weren't aware of what the implications might be. And so, for example, you know, if you, if you, are interested in having a, a fulfilling love life, for example, right? Wouldn't you want to know what you're wired to pursue, what you're wired to fear, what options you might have to alter your programming, what things you're unlikely to be able to alter, what others are likely to be pursuing? These are all highly relevant questions just simply to living a fulfilling life. And the idea that there's a map and it comes with uh, evolutionary language and logic, but that nobody tells you where to find that map is troubling. So we uh, we felt a need to produce the book so people could begin to uh, to ratchet up their toolkit. Yeah, I would add that um, our classrooms looked a lot of ways, and they certainly had a lot of content that anyone walking in would have recognized as biology or evolution, and a whole lot of content that people would have classified in different domains and different um, disciplines. Uh, even. Uh, and I think that is revealed in the book as well, right? Out of 13 chapters, there's one and only one that really looks like what you might uh, be led to expect if you were told that you were picking up a book about human evolution, for instance. And, you know, it's, I think it's the second chapter of the book where we run through basically a deep history of our lineage going back to the origin of life on earth. And, you know, it's, it's still not a, 
a completely standard take. And, you know, we pick and choose as anyone who is telling history picks and chooses, especially when the history you're telling is billions of years old. Um, but that, but that, that run through the deep history of the human lineage does look like what people think of when they think of evolutionary biology and how it pertains to humans. But the vast majority of the book doesn't. And so when we talk about, for instance, why people, why modern people have appendicitis and uh, people in non-weird cultures don't tend to, or why the modern problems with sex and gender um, are are, you know, are manifesting now in our hypernovel world. These are equally evolutionary questions, although they are not ones that people will tend to imagine. I'm going to ask you in a second what you mean when you say weird countries or the weird world. That's an acronym. But first, I when you're talking about your students, I think we want to be clear. We're talking mostly about undergraduates that you were teaching at Evergreen State College. And that's a very, very progressive institution. And I'm assuming that a lot of those kids were taking classes in the social sciences. Is Does evolutionary biology get a bad name in those kinds of fields? Are, were they When they were saying, oh, we want something to, to give to our friends so they can understand this, is that because there was some resistance from their peers? Uh, in terms of what's evolutionary and what's a social construct? That tension certainly exists. I should say at Evergreen, these, the mode of teaching was so different that it created a unique dynamic. So we taught one class full-time. Students took one class full-time, and those classes could go on for up to a full year. So the, um, the relationship between professors and students was very personal and deep. We got to know our students very, very well. And so communities developed in these classes and there was an ongoing conversation. We had students uh, engage in a behavior that we came to call uh, dropping in where students who had left our classes, some of them having graduated would come back and effectively function as TAs just to simply tune back into the conversation. I even had a student do that on a study abroad trip. My, the second time I ran a study abroad trip in Panama, one of my students, Maya, from the first time showed up and said, I'm, I'm here and ready to work if you want me. It's amazing. Yeah, I had a, a stowaway <laughs> on a domestic field trip. But in any case, there was a sort of standing community of evolutionary thinkers among the students. And there was also the usual tension between evolutionary biology and all of the fields on which evolutionary logic impinges. Uh, and that wasn't absent at Evergreen by any means, but I don't think it was the motivating factor. I think what was the motiva motivating factor was that students who jumped the gap, who took on the evolutionary logic and began to see how relevant it was to all of the things that they cared about, um, felt empowered and you know, I, I used to be accused of speaking in riddles and I would tell students that I hoped that when they left my class that they would know less than they knew when they went in, but what they knew would be vastly more powerful. The idea being you didn't want to be dragging a, uh, a trailer full of knowledge around with you for the rest of your life. What you wanted was a tiny backpack full of the most amazing and powerful tools you could imagine. And so as people realized that there was such a toolkit, that it was very elegant, efficient, that it uh, opened horizons. They naturally wanted to share it, but it's not the easiest thing to do. One really does need some sort of a, a guide. And, you know, that that really is the origin of the book. 
Yeah, I'm hoping, you know, we we are, of course, still in touch with many of our former students. Um, and indeed, one of them helped us on the book. One of them was our research assistant on the book. So um, we know we know how he feels about it. But I'll be very interested to know if this if the book does what we were hoping it would do and what students were asking uh, for from us for those many years. So let's get to this concept of weird countries. Uh, what does that stand for? That's an acronym, uh, standing for Western Educated Industrialized Rich Democratic. Um, and I don't, I don't actually know to, you know, to what extent it, it covers, you know, presumably the US, Canada, uh, Europe, but also, you know, depending on who you're talking to, Japan, uh, maybe sometimes Argentina. Yeah. What, what used to be called the first world, perhaps. Yeah. You mentioned, Heather, a few minutes ago, appendicitis. So this is fascinating. So you write uh, in the book, um, appendicitis is almost unknown in non-industrialized countries, except in areas where Western lifestyles have been adopted. So you take you, you make a connection between getting appendicitis and getting diarrhea. So explain that. Just for starters, this is one very sort of salient example. Yeah, Um I mean, I think the, the basic story is, well, the, the appendix is not uh, novel in humans. The appendix shows up, has evolved multiple times in different forms across mammals. And in those cultures where diarrhea is frequent, um, what that leaves with people in people who have experienced a bout of diarrhea uh, is a gut that is bereft of both the bad microbes that the diarrhea succeeded in getting rid of, but also of the good microbes. And of course, there's a lot from molecular biology that we know from the last 10, 20, maybe even 30 years about the gut microbiome and how we contain multitudes and how important it is that we actually have a healthy, healthy microbiome in our gut. Uh, so what the appendix appears to be is effectively a repository of good, of good gut life, uh, that can be used to reinstate your, your gut flora after a bout of diarrhea. And in the West, what we have is food that is so much, uh, so much less likely to prompt a bout of diarrhea, uh, that you end up with an appendix that rarely gets used. And so, you know, one of the idea basically is that an appendix that is never called upon to re, uh, reconstitute your gut biota, uh, with its contents will become inflamed and may burst. Well, it is also worth noting that for those of us who have an overabundance of food, a situation that is highly unique, most creatures are food limited most of the time because if they weren't food limited, their populations would grow until they were. Um, but for creatures like us who have an overabundance of food, it also doesn't really matter. The ability to get your gut functioning optimally right away after a bout of diarrhea it's not so important because um, because you will regain gut flora. So what we see is that people who've had their appendix removed after it's become inflamed do fine because they're not under the same the same pressures as their ancestors would have been. So the utility of it has been greatly diminished by modernity, and the risk to it has been increased by the change in our our diets and that combination leaves us with something that is essentially almost fully a liability um, but in an ancestral environment this would have been just the opposite the risk would have been very low and the value of not only being recolonized by useful gut flora but having some sort of optimal mixture of them that could get your gut 
uh, firing on all cylinders very quickly after an illness, that would have been extremely important. Okay, so does this mean that as more people live in weird countries rather than the developing world, that appendices will become less necessary and that we will evolve past them? Are they, well, in 500, 1,000, 5,000 years, I don't know if we're all still here, which I kind of doubt, will there, will nobody have an appendix anymore? No, that's far too rapid for the elimination of the appendix. But I, I, I think the other thing to realize the real deep story of the appendix is there's the physiology uh, and its interaction with our diets. But then there's also the fact that we've been telling ourselves a wrong story about the appendix, um, you know, for uh, many, many decades. And that story involves it being a vestigial organ. If it is vestigial, meaning useless uh, or now useless, then it is only recently so. The fact that it was ever understood to be a vestigial organ was really, that was science's error looking at a feature that it could not explain. And rather than saying, we don't yet know what this is for, throwing up its hands and saying it's not for anything. And the, uh, I, I should say that that uh, was a longstanding mystery for us. I noticed in college that the explanation that it was vestigial didn't make any sense. The hazard that the appendix poses to people is so great that were it useless, selection would rapidly have eliminated it. And because it exists uh, and persists in spite of that hazard, there was a question to be answered. So really, the, the punchline here is we should have known it was for something and we should have been on the hunt for what that something was and why it didn't seem to matter if you removed it. And we could have been there many decades ago uh, had we been evolutionarily clear headed about it. And this points to both the arrogance uh, and reductionism of of moderns, really, but specifically in this case of modern medicine and modern science, where you know when you when you have something that has a clear cost and you come up with a solution like rip it out, um, often that would appear to be um, the obvious thing to do. And you know we talk about in the book another thing that doctors in the early twentieth century were suggesting, uh, which was you know what not just the appendix but the entire large intestine. The entire colon can go, what's it doing there anyway? Let's just rip it out. And with, you know, with hindsight of a hundred years ish, it's totally clear that, uh, just taking out people's colons, um, healthy colons is not a good move. But it of course raises the question of what kind of reductionist and overly simplistic analyses are happening now that we can't see, that we will be able to see with hindsight. Uh, whereas if you, if you pause a moment and say, okay, do the kind of analysis that Brett just did and say, there is clearly a cost under modern circumstances. Therefore, selection would have begun at least to eradicate it had it been all cost. What is the benefit that we have not yet begun to see? And this is a, this is a logic that applies not just to our physical structures where it should be painfully obvious to people, but uh, applies to our longstanding cultural traditions as well. So evolutionary biology has not fully upgraded to the recognition that our culture exists, that it is every bit as biological as our genes, and it exists in the service of those genes. And therefore, 
any complex, long-standing, expensive, widespread behavior should absolutely be assumed to be adaptive in biological terms. And to the extent that we can't explain what its value is, that tells us what question we should be trying to answer rather than dismissing something as, oh, that's just cultural the way it is still fashionable to do in many disciplines, including, embarrassingly enough, biology. Let's actually get to something that I think perhaps is one of the reasons that sometimes people are uncomfortable with evolutionary biology, which is, you know, areas around sex and mating and reproductive strategies. So I know, Heather, you and I talked about this a lot in our conversation, but I'm assuming that part of what your students were wrestling with was this idea of gender roles uh, how to find a partner, what to do when they're in uh, a, a mated, when they're in a partnership, when they're in a family structure. So what are the things, let's just go, let's just start kind of broadly and then narrow down. Like what, what are the things that people are most resistant about in this particular area? Like you're saying this is evolutionary and other people say, well, no, this is a social construct, like gender roles between parents, for instance. Maybe we can start there. Yeah, well, I guess I would start by saying that we never want to engage in the naturalistic fallacy, that understanding what is and what has been true and what selection has handed us, what evolution has handed us, does not mean that's our fate, and it doesn't mean that it's what should be the case in functioning societies. And so, you know, understanding, for instance, that, you know, sexual reproduction in our lineage is at least 500 million years old, says, and that there are some kinds of sex roles of gender, if you will, that follow from the binary that is female and male, does not mean that many of those roles can't be changed in modernity, and that uh, men and women can't work, in fact, side by side um, as equals, if while not pretending to be the same. Right. So, um, you asked about, you asked about, uh, parenting, like roles in parenting. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. For example, yeah. I mean, I think that's very clear. Yeah. yeah. That's an easy so, one. There's, you know, there's obviously anatomically and physiologically mandated truths. You know, women, women gestate and lactate and, um, and then do, you know, have all of the other physiological functions associated with those things. But in terms of bringing forth the baby, uh, that is something that you can't hand off to your partner as much as, as, as much as I, I joked, uh, between my two pregnancies with Brett that I'd really like for him to take care of it next time. Um, but you know, it's just not going to happen. That said, pretty much everything else can be shared. And, um, and the fact that the mother bonds with her baby at this, you know, deeply tactile level, you know, having the baby on board for nine months and then having the baby on the breast for some number of months or even years afterwards does mean that it's a, a bond that happens without much intention being required and that the, there needs to be some intention in the father infant and father child bond. Uh, but, but that's, that's something we can do, right? That's, that's as human as, as love is. Uh, and, you know, love is far older than, than humans. And so, so is father child relationships. So the fact that, uh, fathers don't have the obvious default thing that bonds them to their children the way that, um, natal moms do. And, you know, of course, there are all sorts of other cases of motherhood, um, you know, with adoption, for instance, where the mothers don't have that. And they also need to create the, the interaction that is the loving interaction between mother and child that fathers do. But it's totally possible. 
And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing unhuman or unmanly or unbiological or unevolutionary about any of it. Yeah, I, there are several layers of message to the book. And I think the deep end involves the recognition that we do not have a completely blank canvas on which to paint. We cannot go back to something that we recently were that worked better than what we are because modern realities don't allow it. We have to go forward, but that in effect, what we are looking for is a renegotiation of things like the agreement between the sexes and a renegotiation that is cognizant of what things we are free to change, what things are unlikely to be changed, and what the objective of the exercise is. The, the, the highest and best expression of humans is not a landscape in which men and women are duplicates of each other. Um, that's not going to happen. And it wouldn't be desirable if it did. On the other hand, there's an awful lot of room to equalize a great many things that we do benefit from equalizing. The message is we have to architect a new way of being that succeeds in protecting us and nurturing us and partnering us better than we have done in the recent past. But there are constraints and knowing what they are is the way we're going to do it successfully. So one of the things that I'm always curious about is this notion of mothers having a kind of shorter psychic leash than fathers. So even if, even if the, the parents were, you know, had a completely even division of labor, um, the father was doing all kinds of parenting. There was some, you know, they had really done the math and everything was right. There is often going to be this element where the mother is really thinking on a very granular level about what the needs of the child are between, you know, whether it's when is the doctor's appointment? What are you supposed to bring? What kind of snacks are you supposed to bring to school? How are you supposed to, you know, have a fluid interaction with somebody else's mother? And are those kinds of things, are, are women's brains wired that way? Or is that an example of something that is, that has been put upon us by a culture that has just assumed that mothers are home and have a lot of extra time on their hands to go to the doctor and make snacks? That's a, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, one that really does get to the heart of a, a lot of the, a lot of the discomfort with an evolutionary analysis, because, um, because even those of us who, who really feel like totally modern women who are capable of all, you know, all the things that we want to be capable of, or at least, you know, have the capacity to aspire to those things, uh, do find ourselves stuck in details more than we would like. And I think that's probably true for men too, but, um, women often end up being the, the ones who deal with the details. And to what degree is that an artifact of modernity? And of the particular ways uh, that culture has unfolded that has nothing to do uh, with um, older truths. And to what degree is it an older truth? Well, um, unfortunately, I think uh, there is some really interesting neuroscience um, that, that specifically looks at, um, let's see, I'm trying to remember, it uses the terms gist. And then I can't remember what the, what the countering, um, 
term is, but it's a, effectively like, do you see the forest or the trees? Like which, which kinds of things are you more likely to see? The overall pattern, um, or the, or the details and across a number of different domains, including things like wayfinding and finding your keys. Uh, men seem to be better at, you know, they can, you laugh like everyone recognizes this as soon as you talk about it. And there's actual research to, to support that this is actually, um, true across a number of domains that men tend to be better at the larger pattern recognition, wayfinding types of things. And that doesn't mean that they'll be able to get anywhere because they may not be able to find the keys in the first place. That women are better at that. Exactly. Well, we have to have keyless cars or driverless cars. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Or we could recognize that we actually need both kinds of strengths. And, you know, again, this does not suggest that there aren't women who are amazing at pattern recognition and may finding and wayfinding and men who aren't great at the details, but that on average, that men, men are better at the, at the bigger stuff and less good at the detail and women are better at the detail and less good at the bigger stuff on average across some domains. But you've asked uh, a question that could be addressed in a couple of different ways. And so this again goes to the question of how good is your toolkit? Because it could be true that this distinction is robust and that that implies that it is transmitted genetically and therefore it's very unlikely that we will be able to substantially alter it. We have to work around it. It's also possible that this is transmitted through a feedback and that our expectations of male and female offspring or the observation of what adult males and females do by the young causes this pattern to emerge. And the the really earth-shattering recognition is that it doesn't actually matter which of these modes is responsible. Both of them point in the same direction. It's, it's this, this has evolutionarily been a useful pattern. That does not mean that it is a useful pattern going forward, though it may well be. And if we wish to change it, then it does begin to matter which way it is transmitted. So, you know, this is the key question. And, you know, I think Heather and I have uh, weirdly ended up accidentally pioneering a relationship that actually reflects the lessons in this book. Or maybe that's not so accidental. Maybe it's no surprise that it shows up there. This is exactly what we're talking about. Yes. Is it causation or correlation? Right. Right. But in our case, you know, uh, Heather has, I I think it's fair to say, a kind of masculine approach to the world. She's always been very adventurous, very uh, interested in exploring, unafraid of things like, you know, what, you know, walking through a tropical rainforest alone that doesn't trouble her. So in any case, that's been that's been her approach since I met her in high school. And the fact is and, and you, Brett, are deeply empathic and in touch with your feelings and willing to have words um develop around those things. Sure. Which are, you know, which which is also a little bit gender non-conforming. Right. Right. On the other hand, I also do like a lot of traditionally male stuff. I Absolutely. like tinkering, building stuff uh, with my hands. Uh, I like to go adventuring. Um, I love tropical rainforest and don't worry too much about the hazards because I know they're manageable. So in any case, the point is this is this does not describe a traditional relationship in any regard. There are ways in which there are elements that do fall out fairly traditionally. As Heather mentioned, Though we have had, by accident, the exact same job description and role in the world 
since we, you know, since graduate school, uh, since, since we were undergraduates, in fact. So, and, you know, when it came to parenting, there was obviously the stuff that, uh, you know, Heather did all the breastfeeding, even <laughs> if that wasn't always the way it, uh, it would have been most fair, but, uh, we have divided but, the the labor of of raising the children very evenly, uh, if if not identically. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing is that you can be even and not pay too close of attention to what the tally sheet looks like at the moment, and you can also recognize that doing exactly the same stuff is a waste of both you and your partner's time, no matter what it is that you're talking about. And so, you know, one of the things, for instance, that modernity has given us is the ability for a father to actually feed a baby, even a baby who is only still drinking um, breast milk, because, you know, these, these things are now possible. And, and yet, as we actually mentioned just very briefly in the book, another one of our students, um, Josie Jarvis, uh, long ago, actually, I think it was in one of your programs, Brett, developed a hypothesis that seems to be beginning to be borne out that the moment of expression of breast milk actually follows hormonal cycles in the mother's body. And so feeding a baby milk that was expressed midday in the middle of the night is likely to uh, to risk disentraining any sleep cycles that that child was was developing. And so we have modernity with its modern solutions, which allows for things like a father to develop that bond with the infant in feeding, which is something otherwise fathers cannot, cannot develop. But we need to think about all of the possible downstream effects of that modern solution and do things like, for instance, keep track perhaps of, you know, when it was that you expressed the milk that you're feeding the child now. Oh, see, this is more, this is more on the mother. <laughs> This is this is uh, perpetuating the. Uh, it's always the mother's fault. You're saying that that you can't <laughs> pump breast milk. It's not as good to pump it and and feed it later. You should. It should be no, no, straight from the, the tap. Did I totally no, mishear this? No, no, no. This um, is I'm uh, saying actually that the the modern solution is is fabulous and it really is helpful and in fact it's necessary for a lot of things that modern mothers might want to do. But keeping track of the time of day when it was expressed. Uh, may be useful to uh, to the health of the child, such that you know if you, if you express milk before work in the morning, uh, when you're just getting up, and your own hormones are basically telling you it's time to get up. We're you know we're awake now, and then the baby's father feeds that milk to the child at midnight. That child may be getting effectively hormonal messages saying, "Hey, it's time to wake up." Because oh my this gosh! Is, this yes. is milk that was expressed in the morning time. Okay, that's so, that's amazing, but that also sounds almost too neat to be true. No, no. See, this is the thing, <laughs> Megan. Once you start realizing, uh, th there are a lot of ways to say this. We are not the products of evolution 1.0. We are the products of evolution 10.0 or something along those lines. Evolution has gotten very good at uh, making very subtle modifications, very efficient modifications, which often we overlook. We just don't see how good they are. And in this case, this is a, a perfect example of what it means to go forward rather than backward. You could say, hey, you don't know what the system is that you should live as people did, you know, on the frontier. And there's a reason that a woman is home. And part of the reason is so that she can uh, breastfeed each and every time. Or you could say, well, okay, what are the chances that there are things about this breast milk that we don't know, but that the combination of a label making device and a refrigerator 
actually allows us to renegotiate who is going to feed the child the breast milk without disrupting the messages that we now know are there. I mean, part of the problem is that we take, we historically recognized milk is food, right? That's not false, but it is far from the full truth of what milk is. We are now beginning to understand that it has an immunological role. It has an informational role. And the point is, well, if you were to grant that there are all sorts of features of this um, substance that are conveying things, some of its food, some of its messages, and that what you want to do is act in a way that is least disruptive of what is in there. You have a lot of tools at your disposal that your ancestors didn't and leveraging them is a good idea. Will it be perfectly successful? Is anything lost? Undoubtedly, because at least the physical act of breastfeeding also puts mother and offspring in close physical contact. So it's not that you want to completely substitute uh, breast pumping uh, for breastfeeding, but can you minimally disrupt the system and maximally preserve even that that you do not fully understand? Of course you can. And we need to take that approach across the board. And by, do and by doing so in this particular case, you not only um, free up the mother somewhat, but you provide an additional opportunity for father and baby to bond. But is there a way to know intuitively that that's the way to proceed? Because if, if we're going to explain this through evolution, we can't rely on like reading a book by you guys in order to understand that. Like if, if this was allowed to emerge and evolve over tens of thousands of years, would we just somehow instinctively perceive this? Oh yeah. Given okay. enough, given enough time. And the problem is we don't have that time, but what we do have are tools that can substitute for that time. Right? So for example, you could say, well, evolution might need to devise a new way for us to live so that we don't destroy the planet around us. On the other hand, we can't afford to have populations going extinct, which would be the analog of individuals going extinct that would cause the adaptation of our culture. What can we substitute? Well, we can substitute cognition. We can substitute a conscious exploration of what might be possible. And then we can substitute science as a mechanism for knowing, well, what did this change actually produce? Here's what it was intended pr to produce. Did it produce that? And did it produce unintended consequences that maybe outweigh the benefits that we generated? These are now things that we can um, explore on fast forward. But the key thing is we can't do it with corrupt systems or systems that are founded on uh, assumptions that are incorrect. We have to go in with our eyes wide open and say, look, it may be that there's something about breastfeeding that cannot be preserved in a refrigerator, right? That's a possibility. How would we know? Well, we can look at the outcomes. We can compare a group of people who breastfed always directly, and we can compare them to a group of people that pumped breast milk, but labeled the time of day it was expressed. And we can say, well, what was the outcome on the well-being of these children? And, the, you know, I'm not saying that we're doing that, but I'm saying that we have those tools at our disposal. Speaking of mothers working, division of labor, all of that, one of the big fights I get into with my friends has to do with the gender wage gap, which is really the motherhood penalty, right? In, in my mind. So women earn less income over their lives than men because they have to leave the workplace to gestate at the end, lactate, raise small children. 
As a result, they make certain professional choices uh, that result in them being paid less over time. You write that uh, female doctors are more likely to go into pediatrics. Men are more likely to become surgeons. How much of that kind of dynamic has to do with the way our brains are actually wired and how much is of that has to do with our economic system and the fact that a woman with small children is not going to be able to work the hours that a surgeon works. Yeah, uh, it's it's both. Uh, the, the you laid it out perfectly. You know, women are constrained by our anatomy and physiology if we choose to become mothers, and uh, that will mean that we work fewer hours. Uh, if you actually look at people doing the same work, the actually same work, men and women appear to be, get paid the same thing. Um, but working fewer hours over fewer years mean that, uh, on average, women are making less. Um, this again is a place where, you know, Brett and I, having had exactly the same job description, uh, when our children were young, we were making exactly the same, um, same income as well. And, you know, that, you know, sure, we were at a progressive college, but, um, that, that actually holds when you actually do the analysis correctly. That said, um, the fact that women are more likely to go into pediatrics and men into surgery, which is consistent with the broader finding that women are more likely to be drawn to careers in which they are engaging with humans or non-human animals, and men are more likely to be drawn to careers in which they're dealing with things and machines, um, is, is true. And it is also true that we have a history of valuing work that is more male typical more than we value work that is female typical. And we, and, you know, society has tended to reward with money those things that are more male typical than female typical. So you know, why is it that we persist in having a pretty large wage gap? I believe, uh, between surgeons and pediatricians, uh, that is probably, uh, an historical artifact of I guess, I guess we'd call it systemic sexism, of which there is uh, precious little modern evidence of it, of it, you know, persisting now in its sort of active form, but we are still dealing with the uh, long downstream effects. Yeah, there's, uh, in the way you asked the question, there is something that needs to be parsed because you asked if we are simply wired this way. And I would argue, we need to draw a distinction between wired, which might imply hardwired, that is to say, our genes might encode things that make male minds and female minds function differently, prioritize differently, etc. And then there's the possibility that we are programmed differently. And if we are programmed differently, meaning uh, programming that was picked up after we are born, that's much more amenable to being altered. But there's really a larger failure here, which is that we have lost the agreement we once had on how we are to interact with each other. And the problem is that the deal we used to have, the way men and women used to interact with each other was decidedly unfair to women, especially at the point uh, after agriculture reduced the interbirth interval that basically the burden of child rearing was so great and so regular that uh, it hobbled women in their capacity to contribute to the world in other ways. And birth control 
has been a spectacular success in restoring power to women to contribute as they want. A woman does not need to produce offspring. If she chooses to produce offspring, she can produce them at a moment that is optimal. And that has been fantastic from the point of view of restoring a kind of fairness that may never have fully existed, but certainly existed um, more in very early stages. Yeah, actually, and I don't mean to interrupt you. This was fascinating to me. So before, before the, what do you even call it? The, the advent of agriculture and agrarian society, how would you, so people, people did not have so many kids back. I mean, we associate the past with a complete lack of control over reproduction, but in fact, way early, there were a lot fewer people were having a lot fewer babies. So and explain why evolution has built into women a mechanism of elegant birth control built around the idea that the resources are not always available. So the fact that women who are lactating are infertile, the fact that women who are undernourished are infertile, um, these are adaptations designed to create family planning around the key fact for our early ancestors, which it would have been the lack of resources and the necessity of large amounts of resource in order to successfully raise children. Let me just respond to what I'm sure will be pushed back to that, to, to what you said, which okay. is true, but it requires a refinement. Um, there is something called lactational amenorrhea, which just means uh, when lactating, you don't menstruate and therefore are infertile. And so what you said, Brett, was when you're lactating, you're infertile, um, which is true, but it requires a frequency of having the baby at the breast or expressing milk otherwise um, that most modern women don't engage in. And so in, for instance, in a hunter-gatherer environment uh, where a mother would typically be be carrying her child at all times, anytime that child expressed an interest in in breastfeeding, she would she would accommodate that. And that meant that the periods between breastfeeding were, you know, on the on the matter of a few hours, three, four, five hours. And I don't remember exactly, you know, it's somewhat variable what what the evidence for lactational amenorrhea is. Um, but it, for modern parents, who hope sooner rather than later to, for instance, be able to sleep through the night. Um, having the goal of having a child sleep through the night will also mean that even if you are still breastfeeding throughout the day, you probably are not experiencing lactational amenorrhea. And so even in, in modern times with women who are trying to do everything right for their child, if they're relying on the fact that they're breastfeeding as a form of birth control, unless they really have that child at the breast every three or four hours, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. No, I was really just talking about ancestral circumstances where we have of course, a absolutely elegant system for causing women to be fertile exactly when they are capable of producing their next offspring, which for uh, our hunter-gatherer ancestors was not all that frequent and how, because of the... Sorry, how long would the hunter-gatherer babies be at the breast till they're like 12 years Three old? Three to they're in college. Years. Okay. <laughs> till they're, till they're in college. Yeah. I mean, it, it varies across cultures, of course, but um, three or four years is a number that both Brett and I are coming up with, which which then means that the interbirth interval is going to be four or five years, you know, three, four, five years. And yes, um, you know, yes, people became fertile um, early, uh, but frankly, that, you know, early fertility uh, for 
for people in non-weird circumstances without this crazy abundance of calories that we have access to tends to be a subfertility, just as fertility at the end of your reproductive life is a, is a kind of subfertility. You know, it's harder to get pregnant when you're 45 than when you're 30, and it's harder to get pregnant when you're 15 than when you're 30, except in very modern circumstances. Right. So modernity throws multiple monkey wrenches into what was a very elegant system. And, you know, again, just to keep returning to this theme, the point is there's nowhere to go back to. We cannot just simply restore the inputs to that system that would make everything reasonable again. We don't even have that option, right? We are moderns and we do have agriculture and that means there will be plenty of resources and that will mess up the system. But can you restore order understanding what the system is looking for and then using uh, you know, a sort of light-handed modern touch to restore meaning. And and the thing I was really trying to get at is that we have lost an agreement about how we are to interact, right? Are we to bond monogamously, right? If people are bonded monogamously, do their bonds mean that other people should respect them and, you know, not hit on them, right? We've, we've lost this idea. And so, you know, you have people playing with uh, concepts that won't work, like the idea that, well, if everybody just sleeps with everybody, then nobody will know whose kids are whose, and that will bring uh, men into just sort of general child rearing. This is a nonsense idea, and it will ultimately. Uh, Wait, whose show- idea is that? I haven't heard that one. Oh, you like, haven't? They're going to be collectively raised, sort yeah. of like. Oh, this is. A, so the polyamory community, oh. and I should say the polyamory community is two communities. It is a small number. I think it would be many, many communities. (laughs) Well, there are two kinds of polyamorous. There are are those who are intellectually serious about the possibility that there is something that could be stabilized that would be desirable that we might call polyamory. And then there's men trying to get laid by convincing people that it would be a good idea if we all just lowered our standards and hopped into bed. Well, that's not polyamory. There used to be another word for that, but yes, okay. (laughs) Yes, Yes. there, there are many other words for that. I would imagine every culture has many words for it. But um, but anyway, the point is, look, if you agree, and in our in the book, we are um, unashamed to point to monogamy and say, actually, this is just a superior system for lots of different reasons. Not only is it superior from the point of view of fairness and the well-being of both men and women, um, but it is also superior from the point of view of producing a society that is less warlike, less uh, prone to internal violence that is better at raising children that raises them more effectively so they end up wiser at the point that they emerge into the world and make their way Um, but we're going to have to get back to a place where we realize that where we don't regard monogamy as stodgy where we don't regard people uh as prudes for uh for pointing out why it is superior and were we to do that then we're in a different position with request with respect to the wage question that you raise because you know look markets are going to price in the fact that women because they are women physiologically may well step away from careers in order to invest in children yes there is some degree of true wiring around that and there is certainly a physiological apparatus that cannot be divided between the sexes and so we'd be crazy given what we do understand about economics to imagine that they will not price that in Could we do something to force them not to price it in? We could, but then that's going to create another problem, which is do women who have decided not to produce families, are they entitled to whatever correction it is that we 
build into the market so that it does not price in that fact. Right. So, and, and wouldn't such a correction mean that some employers would preferentially be looking for men because now women come with a, a handicap? Right. Like and of course, we could penalize employers for doing right. that, which would, of course, drive it underground. So anyway, there's a there's a catastrophe ready to unfold unless we understand once again that uh, as much as individualism is a true value and something that has been tremendously important and productive, it's not the only value. We are also a a a people. And as a people, and you know, I'm not just talking about within nations, I'm talking about the sort of larger post-enlightenment weird world, frankly, um, that we have shared fate, that if we all act individually all the time, we will self-sabotage if we recognize that actually some of the rules of society are built around our collective well-being and that that is uh, a proper thing. And that, frankly, if you looked across all of the values, yes, some some values will be slightly degraded if we return to a recognition that monogamy makes things better. But if we were to look across all values, the number of things that are enhanced by a recognition that stable monogamous pair bonds are best, uh, especially when it comes to child rearing, and that child rearing is uh, one of, if not the top priority of a functional society with durability, then we can get to the solution to the question that you ask, which is that once we start looking across teams, we have a whole set of solutions that aren't available if we have to solve everything on an individual basis. Okay, but with monogamy, are you, this is, I'm going to phrase this in the most banal way, but I think this is probably the question most people are asking. Are you suggesting that it is a natural human state? Because a lot of people would argue that monogamy is really not practical. I had Dan Savage on a couple of weeks ago and, you know, his whole thing, he's monogamish, right? Mm -hmm. So he thinks that the way relationships can stay together, committed relationships, is for the partners to be able to stray casually. This is a paradigm that works better for all kinds of evolutionary reasons, which I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about in gay male relationships. But his his argument is that it's women that put the brakes on that kind of straying, but it also is counter to people's just natural sexual instincts. Well, I think I actually, I, I listened to your conversation with Dan Savage and I really enjoyed it. And that was one of the few points of, of issue I took, you know, not being surprised at all by his position, um, that it is exactly true that men and women are not the same in this regard. And that, uh, yes, w- what you, what you see, and I believe that he actually, uh, went through this, that, um, lesbian women are more likely to be actually monogamous and, uh, straight couples, uh, in sort of this intermediate state. And then, uh, gay men, you know, bonded or not, uh, are most likely to have open relationships. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that does point out to what has been a possibility in times past, right? It wasn't a possibility pre birth control and, um, you know, pre, pre basically abortion on demand for women to engage in the kind of um, sexual free for all um, that we can now engage in. That simply wasn't a possible and a possibility until basically yesterday in evolutionary time. Um, it has been for men and it has been a strategy that has worked for men. You know, rape has also been a strategy that has worked for men and no one is advocating for that 
we can all acknowledge that that is a terrible and immoral strategy that men have been able to engage in in times past. This sort of intermediate strategy, this short term, no coercion, no one did anything they didn't want to do, but um, after after the sexual act both people go on their merry ways, in the past has had the potential of leaving the woman with now a lifetime commitment and um, and the man has nothing downstream. So is it amazing and progressive for everyone to act like men engaged in that strategy? Or might it not be a more amazing and progressive state to say, let's actually all act like we do when we are behaving like men and women at their best? as opposed to like men at their second worst. But worst or most primal? Are you equating no. primal with bad? No, 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 not at all. Yeah. So we've got to step into a couple different realms to, to really answer your question. One is men have two different reproductive strategies, speaking broadly, that work. One of them involves heavy investment in their partners and their offspring. And the other involves... Uh, no investment. The latter of those is a much less historically successful strategy, um, but it is a bargain. Evolutionarily speaking, the production of an offspring who might go into the world and reproduce on their own without investing in them beyond sex itself is uh, such a bargain for men that they have a hard time ignoring opportunities that seem like they lead in that direction. This is why it seems more primal. But men also do invest in partners and offspring. And when they invest in partners and offspring, they are every bit as choosy as women are. So men have a natural, evolved, primal mode that involves looking for long-term partnership. Um, we think of it in some other terms because the second mode, uh, the non-investment mode, is also a natural mode. And so it sort of seems like uh, women are choosy. Men behave like women because women demand it, but they would naturally behave in this other way. And that's just not correct. Now, I do want to point out, though, you ask is, you know, is monogamy effectively natural in humans? And the answer is yes, with a major qualifier. So human beings have significant but not tremendous uh, diversity in form between the sexes. We have sexual dimorphism. Men are on average somewhat larger than women, somewhat stronger than women. That suggests a history of polygyny, mild polygyny, but polygyny in the human lineage. And indeed, um, most uh, cultures throughout human history would have been somewhat polygynous. That said, most of the people on earth today come from cultures that are monogamous. And we believe that this is not um, pure accident, that this is actually evolution at work. And the important thing is after agriculture, um, you have a period in which the human population is growing and humans are expanding to new parts of the globe and making more use of them when they get there. Monogamy is actually superior in populations that are growing because it brings every adult into child rearing. That is to say, men don't invest in children unless they have good reason to believe that those children are their own. And monogamous bonds produce that certainty of paternity. So if you want the maximum number of human babies raised in a population, the way to get there is monogamy, which brings uh, 
men into fatherhood at the highest rate because men, more men find partners rather than a few men having many partners. So what you're really seeing is that you have a very ancient history of mild polygyny that is overridden by our software layer. Evolution in our software layer has transitioned us to a globe that is mostly monogamous because it, it involved the expansion of the human population. And what we are now seeing is the breakdown of that system. As we reach the limits of the planet and populations are no longer able to grow, we are seeing a breakdown back in the direction of polygyny. And that will be terrible for humans. It will make, and it will make them. When you say polygyny, you're talking about men with multiple well, women. Is that what yes. you're? What, what, how do you define That's that exactly? Because it, it's not polygamy. So, polygamy is the, is the, um, the category that includes both polygyny and polyandry. And usually it, humans tend to conflate the two, polygamy and polygyny, um, but they're just terms of art with regard to mating systems. Polygamy is any mating system where you have members of one sex tending to monopolize multiple members of the other sex. Uh, so polyandry would be one woman with lots of men, which is very, very rare in humans and in mammals. And uh, polygyny is one male with multiple females. Poly polyandry being rare because biologically it makes no sense. It does not greatly increase the number of offspring that can be produced to have multiple husbands. But there are cases. Okay, but... but <laughs> All right. Wait, I have so many yeah, questions. And, Sorry. Go yeah, ahead, Heather. I, just, I wanted to, I wanted to pick up, <laughs> I wanted to go back a few billion years if I could, <laughs> uh, because I think really the, the question that people will have in their heads when you say, but isn't this more primal? Like, isn't this the, you know, isn't this the thing that we've been doing for a very long time? Um, one way that, uh, that biologists would approach this question is to look at what our closest relatives look like with regard to, um, with regard to both the degree of polygyny, but then also the anatomical and physiological correlates of that polygyny. So Brett mentioned sexual dimorphism, which is when males and females are different sizes, different musculature, different sized teeth, right? Like, so basically the, the weaponry that males will use to either fight with other males or coerce females uh, will tend to be bigger relative to those weapons in females, the larger degree of polygyny you have. And so um, our closest relatives um, are both chimps and bonobos, and they are very, very different behaviorally, but they're fairly similar, fairly similar at a morphological level in terms of their size and shape. And we split from them something like six million years ago, and we are much less sexually dimorphic than them, which suggests that for a very long time, we have been moving away from their mode of polygyny. And so some of the pieces of evidence that suggest that we are less sexually dimorphic from them, from which you can extrapolate that we are less polygynous than them and more monogamous, are um, our relative size is closer in men and women than it is in male and female chimps, for instance. The muscle mass differences in male and female chimps is greater than it is in humans. The size of those, the canine teeth in, in male chimps is much larger compared to the female, the canines of female chimps than in humans. And, um, the evidence of sperm competition is also much, much larger in chimps and bonobos than it is in humans, which is to say, when you look at, for instance, testis size to, to, uh, body size ratios or even the mid-piece volume of sperm, which sounds like, you know, we're getting deep into the weeds here, but basically under what circumstances would you expect sperm competition to be a big factor? It's those conditions in which there's a lot of fighting for access to females and a lot of females sort of, you know, sneaking around the, the dominant male and potentially dominant males getting ousted and um, trying to, um, trying to 
replace the sperm of who used to be dominant. And those pieces of evidence of sperm competition uh, suggest much greater competition in in our closest relatives than we have in humans. Again, suggesting many millions of years of a move away from a strictly polygynous past towards monogamy. So are you, I feel like I'm prefacing every question with are you saying that? <laughs> going to just reduce everything. Like, and then, so what you're saying is, the, yes, the Kathy Newman exactly, exactly. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. What can I say? <laughs> uh, so are you suggesting that we are becoming less sexually dimorphous as we evolve? So in a million years, there will be even fewer differences between males and females. We're sort of becoming androgynous. No, it's not androgynous. If you look at species in which monogamy is the norm, if you look at gibbons, for example, which are the closest relatives we have that are monogamous, so these are lesser apes, um, they are uh, identical in size. And so the point is the degree of difference in especially size is an indication of mating system, and monogamy has a particular hallmark. And so what Heather was pointing out is that we have clearly in the last six million years since our divergence with chimpanzees been in motion in the direction of monogamy. What will happen in the future, if there is a future, depends very much on how we behave and what we decide is sophisticated at this point. If we decide on uh, a effectively promiscuous mating system and we call it polyamory because we don't like the sound of promiscuity, then what you will see is a uh, increased weaponry, you will see increased testes to body ratio, you will see um, increased degrees of lame male behavior, including Mm -hmm. coercion. So all of those things would be uh, a disaster for humanity. And I think we can also see that in the present, we hear lots of people talking a lot about liberation and, you know, getting over the stodginess of the past. What I don't hear any of, though, is I hear no indication that people are being more satisfied sexually or in any other way by all of these new sophistications. In fact, what, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking to our students when we were teaching, and overwhelmingly, one gets the sense that all this liberation has had exactly the opposite effect, that people are distinctly unsatisfied. And unfortunately, they seem to think that the solution to that involves going further in this direction rather than retracing their steps and saying, well, what did I give up that was actually going to make my life better? And one thing that's clearly on the list is a, a pair bond in which you invest fully. There's really nothing more important from the point of view of how happy you're going to be with your life. And uh, it's time people recognized it. Okay, but no, please go ahead. uh, Just to pick up on your suggestion that um, losing, you know, becoming more monogamous, losing some of the sexual dimorphism might make us androgynous. Um, I can see how that could be a conclusion, but I would say that's not that isn't even something that had occurred to me until you said it. I didn't it. mean literally um, androgynous, actually. I meant yeah. just like, are, are we going to, are men and women going to have similar heights or are our bodies becoming more similar? Just that kind of thing, I guess. That's what I bet. Well, I, I, I think we, you know, we are losing some of the indicators of sexual dimorphism, but the fact is, 
that women find different things attractive in men than men find in women. And while when we look at, say, monogamous species like gibbons or swans, um, there is some greater similarity in what each finds attractive in the other as potential mates, um, there are still differences. There's still division of labor. There are still, um, there are still different things that females find attractive and that males find attractive. And so it's not, you know, that, that would not be a fate about which we should be scared that we will all meld into one another and it will be the end of, end of sex. Um, quite the opposite, I would say it would allow for, uh, you know, a greater experience of sexual fulfillment. Yeah. And, you know, if we look at, if we look at the gibbons again, gibbons in size are the same. In behavior, they are not the same. There's still su substantial differences between males and females, um, you know, even radical differences. So, no, it's really about weaponry, right? The reason that men are bigger than women is that force has played too much of a role. And to the extent that we say, actually, how much do we want force to play a role in our sexual dynamics? Maybe we don't really want force involved. Maybe that's not an indicator of a healthy society. You mean sexual force, sexual coercion? Yes. Well, whether it's, sex sexual violence, whether it's sexual violence, are you talking about war or you're talking about relation, sexual relations? I would say all of these things are on the table. You've got coercion of women by men. You've got uh, fighting between men, physical fighting between men. You have warfare, which is particularly likely in a culture. So if you have a uh, an outbreak of polyamory that predictably enough devolves into polygyny, what you're going to have then is a society in which you have powerful elite men and you have sexually frustrated men with no reproductive prospects, it is almost inevitable that the elite men who have multiple wives will find an excuse to send those young sexually frustrated men across a border with weapons where those men may indeed find sexual opportunity. Um, and, you know, basically, do you want to live on that planet? Because I don't. This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Pettisey. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsi-Ali, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's Tell stories of grit and survival. Subscribe and listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. I want to go back to something about monogamy. Let's talk about serial monogamy for a minute here. So would it not make the most reproductive sense to have a family, say you're a male, raise your family, raise your kids. Once the kids are out of the nest, go and find a younger wife, start all over again. Well, okay. So when you first said serial monogamy, I thought you were talking about brand loyalty to uh, certain... Oh, well, right. okay. Well, certain that's, breakfast we're going to get to that in a bit, but for the moment. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's put it this way. the We have to get past the idea of what is natural, right? Is it natural for men who have raised a family with one woman to have uh, their detectors open for the possibility of raising a second family? Yes, that is natural. It's unfortunate, but natural. Is it good for society, for men of means to engage in this behavior? No. And in fact, the labeling of this as serial monogamy hides what it actually is. 
It's seropolygyny. And the point is the, the same logic applies. If a man raises one uh, family, then the point is that maximally distributes sexual opportunity and it brings uh, the maximum number of men into productive investments in relationships and child rearing. If one man has more than one family, it will be the elites who are the beneficiaries of this. The cost will flow to the women who have been abandoned, to their children, and to the men who have no reproductive prospects. It's polygyny. It's just staggered. And so to the extent that polygyny is bad, and this is very clear for many reasons, some of which we haven't talked about, for example, uh, the degree of collaboration that is likely to exist in full siblings is much greater than that in half siblings. Um, so those benefits that flow from a monogamous system have to be protected from all alternatives, even other alternatives that are falsely labeled as a kind of monogamy, like serial monogamy. What about women's sexual desire as they get older? What is even the point of uh, a postmenopausal woman being able to have an orgasm, for instance? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I don't I'm know asking should... for a friend. I'm literally asking for a literally friend because asking. I have this. I have this uh, argument with a one of my dearest, oldest friends about a whole set of issues related to this. So you're gonna you're gonna settle this. I'm gonna start someplace distinctly unsexual here, which is food. Food is not just about nutrition and humans. Food is also about community and about bonding and about coming together over something that someone among you or perhaps many among you have created with love and yes, being nourished, but not just nourished in body, but also in soul. So food is more than its original point. So is sex. Sex in humans is not just about making babies. Sex is about bonding and about connection and about love and about relationship. And there are things that are shared uh, in in an intimate relationship, in a, in a sexual encounter with someone wh whom you love, uh, that that has no words, right? That can't be shared another way, and that has value far beyond anything reproductive. So, you know, what's the point of an orgasm in a woman who has no chance of having a baby anymore? It's all of those things. None of those are diminished. So, I, I want to add something here because it's really, in some ways, the answer to your prior question. It is the indication that evolution has spotted the very thing that we were talking about and has equipped us for it. Um, so one of the things that is true about human offspring is that it takes a very long time to raise them. And in fact, oddly, you're not even done when they're technically mature. Um, so the real question is, why in humans, unlike almost every other creature, and really the exceptions to this, if they exist at all, are a handful, why in humans do we outlive our reproductive, our directly reproductive lives? And the answer is that our fitness is actually enhanced by our sticking around. And menopause, far from being a failure of the female rep reproductive system, is actually an adaptation. It is a switching of mode where the effect that a woman has on her own evolutionary fitness switches from the production of new offspring to the enhancement of the offspring that already exist and grand offspring. And 
the point here, the punchline really is what's the point of female orgasm at all? And why would it be extended into a post reproductive phase? And the answer is to maintain the bonds that make these lineages robust. So in effect, we have in many ways in uh, the realm of human sexuality been given a tremendous gift. The fact of non-reproductive sex is a gift and it is a gift awarded by selection. It is awarded to produce these robust bonds. The fact that even women, and I know there's pushback to be had here, but uh, it's an argument we could win given time. The fact that even women do not know when they are fertile and have sex outside of their period of fertility and that that behavior continues after their fertility has come to a complete end. All of that is about the production of robust pair bonds that facilitate the well-being of offspring and grand offspring and of the culture more broadly. And uh, pretending that they are somehow a mystery is to ignore all of the evidence before us. Okay. So when we talk about how men are programmed to pursue younger women, think that younger women are just objectively more sexually desirable than older women, how much are we sort of over-relying on an evolutionary explanation? I think this is one of these things that makes sometimes people uncomfortable with evolutionary biology, but it also gets tangled up with evolutionary psychology, which I'm curious how you two... I'm curious what you two think about evolutionary psychology, because it seems to me so misapplied uh, and it must it must annoy you. But let, let's let's just like, you know, if we were to say, oh, well, he can't help it that he's lusting after these young women. We can't help it that young women are, you know, really like the the, the predominant image of our material culture, our corporate culture, how we advertise things. Is that an evolutionary manifestation? Um, as always on, on these sorts of questions, the answer is multifaceted. The basic answer is yes, there is something about youth, especially in females, that is tied to one facet of sexual attractiveness. And the reason is well understood. And yes, it's well understood in evolutionary psychology. And it has to do with the fact that um, a woman's reproductive lifespan is the key to how many offspring she could produce. So the more of a woman's reproductive lifespan that is behind her, the less potential evolutionary value, and I hate even saying that term, but the less evolutionary value she has from the point of view of a potential mate. Now, so that's a, a built-in uh, feature or uh, wh whatever. It's, 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 it's something that men are built to notice. However, this has been a wildly distorted by our culture, which has exploited it to sell all sorts of other things and therefore put a priority on it that is not normal. And the other thing that I think women sometimes don't understand, and I don't think, you know, it's the kind of thing if I talk to men about it, I will get acknowledgement, but it's not the kind of thing I hear raised unless I specifically uh, make a point of doing so, is that female beauty is not the same thing as the hotness of youth and female beauty is much more durable 
than the conventional wisdom would have us believe. And so what men see, yes, there is something that men are, are triggered by about very young women, but it is also the case that a woman can broadcast that youthful sexuality and it can be very ugly, right? It is not that it is not compelling, but it is not the same thing as beauty. It is not the height of beauty. <laughs> you're you're slut shaming now. <laughs> well, right. I'm am I slut shaming? Um, I will say uh, I don't know how well the world is going to accept this, but I have never been as troubled by the idea of slut shaming as I'm supposed to be. But I do think it should be equally applied to men and women. In other words, I do think that there's something to be said for you know. Let's put it this way. We are supposed to believe that anybody who believes that there should be restraint around sex is a prude. But obviously, this isn't true. If you look at tantric sex, for example, it is all about um, utilizing delayed gratification in order to enhance pleasure. So it cannot be true. Right. But in the micro, people who practice tantric sex are happy to do it with all kinds of people at all the time. So I'm not sure that's a direct analogy. Well, yes and no. Let's just say, if we go back to the earlier part of the conversation, we are seeing something like a sexual free-for-all facilitated by dating apps and things like this. And what we are not seeing is large numbers of people reporting that they are thrilled with their sex lives. In fact, we are seeing a tremendous amount of frustration. So I, I think it's pretty obvious that sexual satisfaction and uh access to sex are not uh, directly correlated. That in fact, sexual satisfaction is famously tied um, to uh, scarcity, right? The, the thrill of the chase is about something. If there's no chase, the thrill is greatly diminished. So I don't think any of this is all that surprising. I think we've just lost track of it, right? We used to know these things. And at some level, the difficulty in accepting the unfairness of the asymmetry that comes along with uh, being different sexes has caused us to forget what actually functioned about the dynamic. And the question is really, how can we rescue the part that worked from the part that was unfair and unnecessary? And, uh, you know, it's readily possible, but you have to notice that that's the objective of the exercise or you're, you're not going to get there. Yeah. I guess I would just add that, um, Youth in women is going to be universally attractive across human cultures. But what it is um, that is furthermore considered attractive is going to be culturally variable. And our current our current modes of of what we are being sold on billboards and on you know advertisements and social media and such feel as usual. Like we are living in the moment that is describing perfectly the epitome of human whatever it is, in this case, of 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 attractiveness and sexuality. Most most weird people, you know, acronym weird people are aware that, you know, art from two and three hundred years ago portrays a slightly different aesthetic. But it's also true that other cultures have a slightly different aesthetic and that in places where, uh, you know, food is not quite so abundant, having more fat on you is, is more beautiful. So, you know, the idea that, well, you know, men can't help it. Look at what we're being sold. Um, this is what, you know, all men throughout time have ever found attractive. Like, yes, youth is going to be attractive for sure, but it's, it's the market's stupid at some level, right? It's, it's, it's adding market forces to 
old, old selective forces that yes, we can override. And some of the things that selection handed to us, we should override, but it's ever more hard to do so when the market has come in and grabbed our desire for everything short term. You know, junk food, junk sex, junk entertainment, junk everything. Of course, the markets are going to confuse us further. I, I should I should just add, at some point, I hope somebody is going to start interviewing men who have longstanding monogamous relationships that work. And I think what we're going to find if we do that is that there is actually a monogamy program that it is atrophied because our culture, because it's trying to sell us other things, has played to this other set of desires. But if if young men knew, for example, that they were choosing between a kind of uh, treadmill of dissatisfaction or a difficult-to-achieve state of uh, satisfaction, obviously – intelligent men would pursue the latter. I think the problem is that what we have told them is that that thing actually doesn't exist, right? We've, we've uh, turned marriage into a joke. And because we've done that, people assume that that's the reality of it. And it may be the reality of it for many people, but it isn't a universal reality. And uh, anyway, I, I, I hope somebody looks into the question. I, I think um, what they will find will be surprising. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I'm not sure that we've turned marriage into a joke as much as we've turned it into something that is naive, that only, that you'd have to be naive to believe in. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to think, as you were talking, I was trying to think like people I know who are, you know, long-term marriages, I'm not sure I can think of anybody who hasn't had some kind of crisis. Not that there has been actual adultery, but if somebody has come up against it, there's been a struggle it's been something that's had to be worked through. In some cases, there has been adultery and one person doesn't know. And maybe it's been kind of tacit, tacitly acknowledged that this is what went on and it's in the past and it maybe has even strengthened the bond. I mean, it's just so hard to to, to know. Um, well, I think you're, no, I think, you're conflating um, two things. Well, hold, hold on a second, though. Um, it, one thing that we ought, what that we used to say when we were we were teaching about mating systems um, is that we can talk about uh, a population or a species being monogamous without pretending that cheating doesn't happen. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's that is that is true and that is real and that's never going to go away. But it doesn't, it, you know, to to acknowledge that um, that infidelity, that cheating, that adultery um, is a reality and will always be a reality does not, and, you know, as you say, I think I think it can actually strengthen a bond. And that's not to say that one ever wants it to show up, but um, but it doesn't it doesn't put the light of monogamy. It's not a, a total deal breaker necessarily. Yeah, I mean, depend. I mean, I think it can be. I think in some cases it will be, but um, but not inherently. So you were going to say, right? Right. Um, no, it doesn't. I mean, and you're right. Every place that we have looked at what what appears to be monogamy in other creatures, we do find. You know, now that we have genetic tools, we look into these systems and we find that there is a certain amount of uh, of cheating, and it doesn't mean that the system isn't monogamous. It means that monogamous is not a perfect system the way we think of it. Well, and in fact, animal behaviorists talk now about genetic monogamy versus behavioral monogamy. So um, I can't remember. There's a, 
it's like the Antichinus or something, some weird Australian mammal, I believe, um, that is, that have extraordinarily strong social pair bonds. They are monogamous, they are behaviorally monogamous. Um, but the amount of cheating that goes on on, on both part, on both sexes part is extraordinary. And so they've basically agreed to raise broods, um, uh, that are not, that are not necessarily of, of full, uh, I believe, if memory serves, uh, that keeps the social system going. Uh, and you know, that's not, that's going to be a very, very rare system that's going to work and it wouldn't work for humans. But uh, anyway, you. So uh, I wanted to make the point that your challenge here is about the complexity of a pair bond, that um, marriage is not simple. And this is true. Marriage is not simple under any circumstances that I'm aware of. That does not mean that it is not viable. And that's the question is, and when I say that it's been turned into a joke, I mean, literally, it's been turned into a joke, right? The idea, you know, that, uh, you know, the, a, a man at the point that he is having his bachelor party is, you know, staring down the barrel of some kind of near, you know, transition into uh, to being a slave or something, right? This is a this is a constant trope. And, uh, you know, it's nonsense, but you don't and, you know, we are left all struggling to figure out how to produce a marriage that works. And no doubt, because we don't have some compendium of wisdom that gets handed down, what we have instead is the expectation that, yes, you're going to find marriage uh, hellish and confining. And, you know, if you're a good man, you'll tolerate it, right? That's not the way you want to bring people into the search for whatever is going to make for a, a good, rewarding, stable relationship. Right. Although... I would I would argue that the the tropes around being perpetually single are just as grim and uh condescending and don't don't paint a very rosy picture. I think that you you kind of can't wait when it comes to that. Uh, right. I think oh, that's true. But I yeah. but I, I this I totally agree with what you just said, but I think the basic point is you can't win is a terrible way to get people to go looking for the thing that actually does work. And you know, frankly, I think if you were to talk to most people about what uh, what they're looking for in a marriage, they would have high hopes and very low expectations. And it's a mistake. Yes. Okay. All right. So just to sort of circle back to what we talked about at the top and really what the book is about, this idea that the world is hyper novel. You'd say the rate of change is so rapid now that our brains, bodies, and social systems are perpetually out of sync. I mean, really... What's animating this project is that the world is seems really messed up and really confusing and chaotic and incoherent. So what is it that that worries you most? I guess I'm going to phrase it that way. What are you hoping to address vis-a-vis -vis where we are at this moment? Well, I, I'll start. I have a perpetual fear that the solution for us is there it is within reach we can't go there directly but we could start navigating towards a world that would be vastly more successful at accomplishing the things that we all agree are desirable than the world we have now but that we will miss our opportunity because we won't be able to take a pause from the battle that we've been drafted into to notice what we are to notice what trajectory we're on and what that therefore implies about the bleakness of our future, that we simply won't be able to step away and say, you know what, 
this can't continue and something better is possible, what what do we need to know in order to move in that direction? Because this is a tiny planet and we are all um, going to be condemned to a terrible fate if we don't figure it out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would just add, you know, the book is apolitical. The final chapter talks about society-wide solutions and specifically discusses the kinds of things that liberals, such as ourselves, tend to get wrong and the kinds of things that conservatives tend to get wrong and recognizes that we need we need both. You know, that 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 good people, the vast majority of people share values and hopes for the kind of world that they would like to live in. And liberals and conservatives, just but one way to split us up demographically, tend to disagree about where we are right now and what the best way to get there is. Uh, but what we what we should all recognize is that almost all of us, and you know, I won't say absolutely every single living human being, but almost all of us actually want a better world, want a world in which we can be productive and creative and and safe and if it is our choice to raise children in such a world as well and we all almost have something to offer to that end and so regardless of what demographic you belong to be it left or right or young or old or male or female or black or white or whatever it is uh, the fact that you as a human being share more with all of the other other human beings out here than differs and that you likely have something unique to offer that can be added at the right place at the right time. Uh, that, that is, that is a unifying vision that emerges from evolution. And I guess maybe that's it that a, a, a naive understanding of evolutionary biology tends to be both, um, succumbs to the naturalistic fallacy and gets us terrible places like eugenics. Uh, and, and it also imagines that what it's pointing out, that what evolution is pointing out is how different we are and all of our differences. And actually at base, we're much more similar than we are different. But I'm curious when you say it, we need to change it or we need to change the way things are. Are you specifically, I mean, I'm sure you're talking about any number of things, but are you talking about social media, for instance? I mean, I thought it was really interesting that you linked the uptick in autism diagnoses with, as you put it, staring at screens animated with creatures that seem to be alive, but are not. So are you really starting to feel like environmental factors age of parents, pollution, just in the autism example, just specifically, is less than we have thought that it really has more to do with our behavior and and culture? I think we need to zoom out slightly. If you looked, if you stood on an average street corner in the West and you watched people pass you, their pathologies are evident. Not everybody would have a pathology, but the number of people whose weight is out of control, who are not in full possession of their faculties, the amount of disorder is spectacular. And it is very easy to look at particular things that might cause disorders and say, well, it isn't that, right? We've, we've looked at it and the data does not reflect that this causes that. But Overarchingly, what we've got is apparently this creature no longer looks like a normal animal, right? If you were to look at a group of deer, if you were to stand in the forest and watch deer pass by, you would be very unlikely to see a pathology from the outside that you could recognize. And the point is 
what is causing all of this pathology? It's hypernovelty. And the fact that it is hypernovelty says that if you wanted to cure it, the right way to do that is not to figure out what pathway to interfere with to reduce the presence of this or that, right? To the extent that we have an epidemic of malocclusion, that is to say the teeth coming together incorrectly in the mouth, the right solution to that is not to move the teeth around. The right solution to that is to recognize that that has to be happening somewhere between the moment that you are conceived and the moment that you are first put in the orthodontist chair. Wait, are you saying that early peoples did not have crooked teeth? Oh, That's no, right. they did not. They did not. Really? Right. And so what we have actually is a field of orthodontia selling an obviously false story that something has gone wrong with our genes that has caused our teeth not to fit together when actually... The correct answer appears to be that we have changed what we give to our children for them to chew on, which has caused our skulls to form badly. Yes, that was amazing. You say human children who chew soft processed food have smaller faces as adults than those who grow up chewing hard food. Right. Yeah. And so and so that's that's the only thing on this in the book. But we we have since Brett has interviewed Mike Mew, who's an orthodontist whose research this is in. And it's not just smaller faces. It's messed up teeth. Right. Every it, 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 it is the collapse yeah. of a part of our skull that then causes many different pathologies that don't just have to do with teeth. And the solution to this is certainly not moving of teeth. It may be that you have to do that if you've allowed the pathology to unfold. But the recognition that What's happening to our eyes and our palates and our psyches are all the result of some novel influence or a set of novel influences disrupting normal development is really the key. And then the solution is, hey, let's build a world that doesn't continue to maim children in this way and that allows them to grow into healthy adults rather than trying to fix all of the ill health with uh, pills and therapies and, uh, you know, augmentations that don't work. Right. Short-term, easily measured, uh, profitably created and distributed solutions are very often not going to be the ones that are best for our long-term health, physical or mental. Yes, I think that's easily, easily grasped. Well, um, I, I do want to end by, by, on the, I do want to end by talking about the book, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, something mostly unrelated. So you two have famously, in the last few months, gotten crossways with some of your fan base and some well-established allies over vaccines. Now, I have to confess, I have kind of lost the thread here, and I'm not especially keen to relitigate this here, but um, I think I would get in trouble with my listeners if we didn't cover this for at least a, a few minutes. So let me just start with my extremely cursory perception of what this debate is about. I had I was under the impression that you were sort of conducting a thought experiment about the COVID vaccine uh, in which you were acknowledging that vaccines generally are important. COVID is real. COVID is serious. That people maybe this is where I went wrong. People should get the vaccine, but that doesn't mean that this is something that uh, is is above any sort of discussion or skepticism or doubt or that we shouldn't think think hard about what the vaccine is. I thought that you were doing a sort of thought experiment and sometimes you were doing it, it like on Tucker Carlson. So what am I missing here? What are people so mad at you about? Well, first of all, it's a little hard to know 
how much of the anger at us is organic because there is a very well-organized, clearly well-financed campaign to sell a particular narrative. And the question is why? And it's not something we're in a position to know the answer to, but we can see, we can see the campaign from the outside pretty easily. Okay. But what do you mean by that? That does sound con- like a conspiracy theory a little bit when you put it in those terms. So I mean, what do you, what do you mean exactly? What I mean is that there is a narrative about what we are to do with respect to COVID. That narrative is at odds with many obvious facts, but that they're, you know, I, I, I won't say conspiracy. I will say people, uh, collaborate. They collude. They do conspire, but we can see that, um, there is a campaign to advance a certain narrative and to block any questioning of that narrative. It is visible inside YouTube's, YouTube's terms of service. It's visible in the Gavi Alliance. It is visible in numerous absurdities in the CDC's uh, claims about what we should do about COVID. So, mm-hmm. okay. Yes. I'm with you that I'm with you so far. Okay. So yes, Heather and I are very enthusiastic about vaccines as a general matter. We are highly vaccinated. Our children are highly vaccinated. We were initially concerned that in the case of these vaccines, which are extremely novel in their technology, that there was no way to know what their long-term impacts would be. And so we were trying to navigate that question. What, what are the risks that come along with this that we will not know until years down the road. And in looking at that question, many other issues cropped up, including the strong possibility. We now know that there are serious side effects to these vaccines that involve uh, risk to the heart, for example. Um, and there are also possibilities uh, the way these vaccines and their the plan of deployment interacts with the epidemic itself creates hazards that most people are completely unaware of. And so we have attempted to sort through what the evidence suggests and what alternatives exist and what a wise policy would be. And the pushback has been incredible. Have you taken the COVID vaccine, either of you? We have not taken these vaccines. We are, we have engaged in very careful behavior to avoid contracting COVID. We have taken prophylaxis. There is much debate about the effectiveness of this prophylaxis. Much of the debate is nonsensical. Um, you mean ivermectin? You've taken it just prophylactically? Yep. We have taken ivermectin prophylactically. And as longtime viewers of our podcast will know, we have spent a lot of time modeling the transmission behavior and the evolutionary change in COVID so that we can behaviorally protect ourselves. But uh, I guess what I would point out is you can get into that debate about the vaccines, about the usefulness of ivermectin and all of that. But at some level, it, it is impossible to explain the recommendations that we are being given by public health authorities. Why, for example, in light of the fact that vitamin D deficiency is uh, puts people at much greater risk of contracting COVID and suffering seriously from it, why are we not uh, recommending people go out in the sun 
make their own vitamin D. And as it gets darker and the days get shorter in the Northern Hemisphere, that people supplement their vitamin D. This is an obvious way to save lives. But why can't they do that and take the vaccine? They can. They can. And it is quite possible that some should take the vaccine. On the other hand, it is far from obvious that we should be vaccinating young people who, when they get COVID, tend to endure it very, very well and from which they would gain natural immunity. So we seem to be engaged in a behavior in which, to the extent that there's any defense at all for vaccinating children, it involves protecting older, vulnerable people. Have we even had that discussion of whether or not a, a decent society puts children at some risk in order to protect old people? But how can you even expect people to get enough vitamin D and make their own vitamin D and go in the sun and take all these precautions? That's like uh, that, that that would be a feat of sort of social conditioning and engineering that is seems impractical. Like, no, this no, is I, really is, is this not? Yeah, I mean, you can't just expect like people en masse. To, to take these measures. I mean, how do you, how do you, what do you say to people who say, well, most of the people who are getting sick now are not vaccinated. So what do you even do with that? Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of story to go down with regard to how, how true such claims are. But I would say that it actually doesn't take much social engineering to encourage people to go outside. And that's, you know, that's the simplest well, thing. Okay. That been, <laughs> I mean, really, and some people I mean, absorb vitamin D in, at different rates and depending on this, you know, your skin the, tone. This, this is true. I mean, obviously, you can you can take a pill, and vitamin D supplementation um, is, you know, is almost non toxic. You don't want to overdo it. But um, the idea that there has been from the beginning of this pandemic one behavioral thing, very simple, that we have been advising people to do since we started our podcast in March of 2020, um, which is to go outside because there's abundant research evidence uh, that at least until very recently, and maybe I think still now, but um, there are glimmers that this may be evolving away from us, um, that this is not a virus that transmits outside. Go outside. If we, if we are going to be in lockdown, if we are going to have so much taken from us by this virus and by policies that are hopefully created to to stop the virus in its tracks. One of the things that we all should have been healthily doing for a very long time was going outside and being outside. And instead, so many of the measures that were, that were coming at us across the world were stay at home. And this is actually very dangerous. This is actually counterproductive to what presumably every, uh, every public health official out there knows. And if they don't, they certainly should. The idea that the virus doesn't transmit outside and that being outside is good for you. If you are sick, you'll get, you'll probably be less sick later. And also that you are much more likely to have the materials on board. That is the synthesis of vitamin D that will preclude you from either getting sick or if you do get sick, getting as sick as you might. This is simple. This is easy. This is healthy for so many reasons. So why isn't this a major part? Yeah, of our no, I, I agree. And I think most people are with you in terms of all that. But a lot of people aren't able to get outside. A lot of people have to work indoors. A lot of people are crowded together in housing with, you know, 12 people in a small apartment. And those people, are you suggesting that nobody should get the vaccine? Like, what is your no. actual? Okay. We, yes. We to be have, clear. We have, we have never said that, but we do think that we are entirely failing to have a conversation about what the risk benefit analysis is. It was possible that there were other ways the vaccines could have been deployed that would have reduced harm and increased their value. Um, but 
you know, I think the central point is there is much that we should obviously be doing to control COVID and in fact drive it extinct that we are not doing and it is inexplicable that we are not doing it. For example, sending people who contract COVID home to sicken in place, home where they are very likely to get the people they live with sick, we are uh, failing to utilize the medications that we have that actually reduce the severity of COVID and reduce its transmission. And that's completely indefensible. Yeah, I don't think that any reasonable person would argue with a lot of that. It just like from a media perspective, it's it's funny because I've often sat there. I, I'm always the one saying like, oh, well, you know, we should be people don't want to have nuanced conversations because they think that people can't handle them and that, you know, the point is going to be oversimplified and then weaponized and people are going to take it the wrong way. And I'm always the one sort of dying on that hill. But, um, you know, in this case, I've sometimes wondered if these are the kinds of conversations that could take place in more controlled environments than like on, on Fox news. And I know you're having them in all kinds of ways. So, but anyway, I, I don't want to dwell on this, but, but I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to get yelled at if I don't uh, bring it up. <laughs> so. But but think about what you just said, mm-hmm. right? What you just said is that all sorts of things that we've been talking about seem to you like they shouldn't be controversial. And yet we do not find them in the official recommendations. And so I think the, point that has been lost, the point that Heather and I have been trying to raise is, why is it that the wisdom that is being dispensed by our supposed public health authorities does not match even the basic logic of what we should be doing to control this? And how good is their recommendation on other things that matter a great deal, like whether or not to vaccinate your teenager, given that they can't even seem to say, supplement with vitamin D? Even if you're right and lots of people won't be able to do it, how many thousands of lives would it have to save amongst those who would do it for it to be worth saying so on the CDC website? Yeah, no, this is the old, they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't even think they could chew gum. (laughs) How does that factor in? Did our, did our, did our ancestors chew gum? When did gum chewing start? And how does that affect the jaw and the size of the head? Actually, gum chewing <laughs> appears to be on the list of recommended therapies for those of us who had uh, our food softened too much as children. Strengthening yes, the jaw with, with a there highly resistant gum appears to be a good thing. Oh, oh. So, so like hubba bubba and uh, bubble gum would just be good for children. That's okay. That's good. We can go back to that. Well, here's my last question. And um, first of all, you've been incredibly generous with your time. So I, I'm really grateful. And this is going to sound like a, a big question, but I feel like I feel like you can answer it uh, both thoroughly and concisely. What is patriarchy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. uh, Well, Brett just got back from a meeting last night, so he should be able to answer. Oh, okay. Patriarchs Anonymous. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 they're not. The the patriarchy actually got together. I mean, not everybody was there, but, uh, you know. No, soon it will be. PA, yes. Yeah. But they weren't all there? This time? No, they weren't all there. This okay. day. They're never all there. I, I mean, see. for one thing, some of them have trouble finding somebody to hold their beer on a short notice. <laughs> I mean, yeah. lots of things can go Indeed. wrong. All right. Serious answer to your question. The problem is the idea of patriarchy and disentangling it from the idea of patriarchal. There is lots of patriarchal stuff. There is no patriarchy. And the reason there is no patriarchy is that it wouldn't make any evolutionary sense for there to be a patriarchy. And this is going to be slightly technical. I apologize for that, but I think it's unavoidable. The vast majority of 
the genes of males and females are shared equally among the sexes. It does not make sense for boy genes to gang up on girl genes. And the reason it doesn't make sense for that to happen is because those boy genes that set up rules that favor men then suffer from those same rules every time they show up in women, which is half the time for almost all of our genes. So there's no reason patriarchy will not evolve. That is not the same thing as saying that men haven't bossed women around. But it is to say that in all functional societies, the structure of the society has advanced the, the interests of the lineage, both men and women. And this has some very uncomfortable outgrowths. The fact is, let's take uh, a behavior that we all agree is abhorrent. Rape spreads the genes of men. It also spreads the genes of women. Women do not engage in it, right? So the idea that lineages have mechanisms for doing their bidding and that those mechanisms sometimes travel male routes, sometimes travel female routes, but that lineages that self-sabotage by having uh, one half of their population upend the other half don't persist. To the extent that there are patriarchal structures in our society, they may well need to be addressed, but they come from somewhere. And if they are historically longstanding, at one time they served some purpose that was not contrary to the lineage's interests. Well, I'm never invited to the meetings of the patriarchy, so I'm going to have a slightly different answer with uh, you know slightly different context. I actually think you would be extremely popular at the patriarchy meetings. I mean, I mean, this, this is this is part of the answer, right? That the you know w- were there uh, meetings of the patriarchy, they'd want women there. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, but I, I guess just to just to go into a little bit of you know maybe inside baseball, sort of anthropological baseball. Uh, I think the distinction you made, Brett, between the patriarchy and being patriarchal is important, and it sounds like just nonsense semantics. But um, in anthropology, there are three kinds of ways that um, that are used to describe sort of which sex uh, does what. And so there's locality, there's lineality, and there's archy. So a matrilocal versus a patrilocal culture, um, when the children marry, um, they stay in the bride's natal home and the men always disperse. So that's matrilocality and patrilocal would be the opposite. Matrilineality would be one in which uh, when they marry, the children take the bride's names. Uh, bride's family name rather than the the grooms. And of course, the vast majority of cultures that I can think of that I'm aware of are actually patrilineal. Um, there's a, quite a lot of diversity between matrilocal and patrilocal uh, societies. And actually, there's a lot of interesting stuff around um, around how female friendships develop in different kinds of matrilocal versus patrilocal societies. But that is a conversation for another time. With regard to you know patriarchy versus matriarchy, that's a question of who has the power. And because of our history of sexual dimorphism, because of the fact of gestation and lactation, keeping women closer to the home and more likely to be doing some of the domestic tasks than, than men. And frankly, men being more dispensable, you know, you, you can send men off on giant hunts where they might come back, um, or, you know, they might come back or they might not in a way that a society can't profitably do that with its women. Um, men do have more of the adventuring, more of the exploring and, because they are more likely to be working outside of the home, at least post-agriculture, uh, more of the commercial and material power. And so I would say, you know, of course, 
there has been, um, we, we have been living in a patriarchal system in which men have more power outside of the home, at least, at least since agriculture. Um, but that is different than saying we are living under a patriarchy. Furthermore, it doesn't rec- recognize what has been happening. So you, Megan, I think, I think we discovered last time, or maybe just a year younger than Brett and me. So we're all Gen Xers and, you and I, Megan, remember growing up as girls in the 70s and 80s and just feeling empowered and like, you know, all, all, all limitations are off. Like we are girls and we're glad to be girls and we'll be glad to be women and we can do anything. Although that was a function of our privilege. Let's just, let's just be clear about that. But yes, that, I think, I think, was? uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I got some pushback on that because people say, well, well, you know, you're white middle class girls. And so, you know, let's, let's keep that in mind. But yeah, I think, I think, uh, across the board, it was, it was a, it was a particularly good time to be a girl in the seventies and the eighties. And, and even with the modern sort of resistance to that and a, a regression towards an older time in some regards, uh, I would say we have demonstrated as a society, at least, you know, on the coasts for people of means that we can move towards that. And that therefore, just, just like, yes, six, six million years ago, uh, we were polygynous and we have been moving away from polygyny. It seems like the evidence suggests ever since, uh, we have been moving away from a patriarchal society, or at least we have shown evidence that we can be for some decades. Is there anything, uh, is there anything I've failed to ask you? I could keep you for hours, but I think we should, we should wrap it up. Um, I mean, at a technical level, I think you failed to ask us almost everything. I know. I know. (laughs) I mean, I have so many. You know what? I was going to ask you about uh, about non-binary and if that is the future. But I feel like that's another conversation. And I vowed I wouldn't uh, wander into that territory. Well, let's have that conversation another time. Let's do it. Heather Hying, Brett Weinstein, thank you so much for speaking with me. And um, thanks for uh, contributing to this whole discussion. So so rigorously and um, consistently, surprisingly, and always, always, always interesting. And you add a lot of value. So I appreciate that. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Megan. The feeling is mutual. That was my conversation with Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. Their book is A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. Their podcast is The Dark Horse Podcast. Heather also has a newsletter on Substack called Natural Selections, where she writes about how the evolutionary process affects our everyday lives. This podcast is the Unspeakable Podcast. It's now carried on Podcast One, but I'm still almost entirely dependent on listener support. So if you like the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash the unspeakable and signing up at any level. That will get you early access, ad-free versions of the show, plus lots of other perks such as discounts on nuanced AF merchandise and the chance to attend patron-only Zoom hangouts. For instance, the one coming up on Tuesday, September 21st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. For more information about the show in general, you can visit its webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com. You could also just leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That doesn't cost any money at all. And it actually helps me uh, a tremendous amount. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. 
and I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.